Virgil Vandegrift had been in the law enforcement arena and had seen and heard enough drama in his life as a Marion County Sheriff to immediately spot trouble lurking in the shadows and around the corner. He began his successful private investigations firm in Indianapolis in 1982, conducting that business part-time until he retired from his job as a county sheriff in 1989. Since his retirement, his firm, located on the west side of town, operates virtually around the clock. He is one of the most respected people in town. He's high-tech and astute, and the gray and dignified Virgil Vandegrift had a reputation for getting the job done. Um, one of his most popular cases is locating missing persons. He quotes, the way it works here in, in Indianapolis is that persons are not classified as missing until they are gone 24 hours. The case then goes to a district detective, and if they don't find them in 30 days, it travels to the Missing Persons Bureau for them to investigate. Now, to the general public, and I'm included in the general public, this seems like a lot of red tape and highly absurd. Parents don't want to wait to find out what happened to their kid and wives don't want to see what happened to them, don't want to wait to see what happened to their husbands. They come to me, end quote. So when the mother of 28-year-old Alan Broussard approached Virgil Vandegrift in early June of 1994 to tell him her son was missing, Vandegrift didn't really sound the alarm. Many cases, he says, usually turn out to be runaways with little or no foul play involved, which is true. A lot of times, you know, people will turn up and what we very often hear, especially when we're talking about murder cases or missing persons cases or disappearances, is that the police, unless, you know, obviously laws have changed now and we have Amber Alerts, but unfortunately there's not an Amber Alert for, you know, adults that are functioning on their own and are leaving of their own, you know, cognizant mind and living on their own. So a lot of times police will say people have the right to go missing if they want. And that is 100% true. But in this case, you know, because Virgil Vandergriff is a private investigator and someone came to him, he was like, you know what, I'll check into it. So he starts to investigate the case. Um, Alan Broussard, who was missing, he learned how to his fair share of troubles, right? He was a heavy drinker, and he was also gay in a community that pretty much shunned the lifestyle. We're talking about, you know, the Midwest um, conservative in Indianapolis in 1994. You know, it, it probably wasn't the best environment to be gay in. And so they said that he was last seen leaving a gay bar called Brothers. So Virgil started issuing posters throughout Indianapolis um, to see if he could figure out anywhere else that Alan might have been and get information from anyone that might have seen him. If at first Vandegrift perceived there was no ill intent behind Alan's disappearance, his perception of what most likely did happen to the man changed quickly. And before the end of July, he became convinced that, as he put it, Indianapolis had a serial killer on its hands. Three incidents occurred tumbling on top of each other. First, Vandegrift learned that an Indianapolis police detective named Mary Wilson was working on the disappearance of other gay men throughout the area, all similar to Broussard's mystery, and even their physical appearances and ages parallel. Second, he came across a small article in a magazine called Indiana Word about a man named Jeff Jones who had disappeared in mid-1993, about a year earlier. This gay lifestyle published lifestyle publication, uh, which Vandegrift's investigators picked up while scouting gay bars, reported that Jones, who was 31, had basically evaporated into thin air from the streets of Indianapolis. 
Vandegrift, in researching Jones, discovered that he shared a background of likely social indifference and wayward habits just like the others. But what really convinced Virgil Vandegrift that there was a serial killer in Indianapolis's in Indianapolis's borders <clears throat> is a more circumstantial event than another disappearance. This took place in July. At this time, Roger Allen Goodlett, who was 34, left his mother's place where he lived to visit a gay bar on 16th Street. As with the other two men, roughly the same age and the casual approach to life, Roger was swallowed into oblivion. So as Mrs. Broussard did, um, Alan Godless' mother came to Virgil Vandegrift because she didn't want to wait the obligatory legal period. And she wept as she told Virgil about Roger and everything about him, including his trusting nature and his tendency to drink too much, which is a whole litany of factors that made Roger vulnerable alone while he was out on the streets. And to quote the book where the bodies are buried, to Vandegrift, listening to her recite, quote, felt like a repeat of those sessions with Alan Broussard's mother, end quote. The fates of these three men were too close to ignore. So Virgil Vandegrift and his investigator, Bill Hitsley, scoured the gay bars in town but didn't come up with much. The owners and the frequenters of these establishments seemed too frightened to talk, but they did learn that Godlet had left a bar called Our Place with another man whose description was very vague in a light blue car with an Ohio license plate. Unfortunately, Vandegrift found the police department really disinterested in any of the information he supplied. But as a private detective, he was not to be discouraged. He knew that he was onto something important and he had enough experience under his belt to comprehend the logic in a case like this. And sometimes breakthroughs come from the strangest places and in the most unexpected fashions. And, Virgil surmised, one indeed presented itself in August, only weeks after he had entered the case. A man named Tony Harris, whose real name is withheld per his request, had known Roger Goodlett from the gay bar scene, and he had seen Virgil Vandegrift's posters and believed that he had stumbled onto some information that might solve the puzzle of Roger's whereabouts. His story was incredible, but he swore it was true. He had been with a man whom he was sure was a serial killer. When he tried to tell the local police, they treated him like he was crazy. And in fact, when he went to the FBI, they suggested that he had merely been on a drug trip. Phoning Roger's mother, she put him in touch with Detective Vandegrift. And you see, Tony was absolutely correct. He had been with the serial killer. And by telling Virgil Vandegrift this story and the investigation that unfolded afterwards brought to the attention and forefront of the Indianapolis community, the fact that a, that a madman was loose and that between 1980 and 1996, it was believed that he had murdered up to 27 men. This man was suspected of not only being a serial killer, but also being the I-70 strangler in a series of unsolved murders happening along I-70. You are now listening to Murder V Wrote. I'm your host, V.
Tony Harris had seen and talked to the killer. In fact, in retrospect, he seems to have miraculously escaped with his life. Over the next several weeks, Tony made several visits to Virgil Vandergriff's office, each subsequent one yielding a little bit more information as he recalled it or chose to tell it. Simply, Tony feared for his life, but as soon as he came to know and trust Virgil Vandergriff and his secretary, Connie Pierce, he opened up more and more each time and his interviews were recorded with his permission. So according to Tony, he had chanced upon the suspect in a local gay bar in town, the 501 Club. Actually, he had seen him before in Indianapolis's gay night scene, but he couldn't place him. It's tall, lanky, quiet, and they'd never spoken. And on this particular August night, what had drawn Tony's attention to the man was the extreme way he seemed to scrutinize the missing persons poster for Roger Goodlett that Virgil Vandegrift had hung behind the bar counter. Tony is quoted as saying, I just had a feeling by the way he was captivated by that poster that he was the man who killed my friend Roger. Something in his eyes, end quote. So with that, Tony's story unfolded. Suspecting the stranger of Roger's disappearance, he introduced himself to the man in hopes of finding out what he might know. The man called himself Brian Smart and evaded Tony's subtle inquiries about Roger, but smiling, invited Tony out for the night. He explained he was a landscape artist from Ohio, currently living in an empty house outside of town that he was preparing for the new owners who had not moved in yet. He said, let's go back there for a cocktail and a swim. Tony reluctantly agreed, and then the night of abstract weirdness began. Outside, they got into Brian's gray Buick with its Ohio license plates, and they headed north on Meridian Street, where it turned into I-31. The downtown expanses disappearing behind them as the greener suburbs emerged. Tony didn't really venture this far north of Indianapolis, but he knew they were headed to quote-unquote rich people territory. So they finally drew off the highway, made several more, more turns, and then entered a quiet locale dotted with new expensive homes and house farms set off by split rail fences. And an asphalt driveway marked a sign atop a landscaped stone embankment, and Brian slowed down. Tony says that it said something farm, but he couldn't really make out the sign as it was so dark. The Buick paused before what was a large Tudor County mansion, country mansion that was unlit. They got out of the car and entered the dark house through a side entrance, passing through a garage where Tony saw several cars parked. And entering the house, Tony thought that it seemed weird that the house was so haphazardly furnished if somebody was moving in. He seemed to remember that there were items of furniture and boxes everywhere. He says Brian motioned to him to come down into the basement where there was electricity and then led him to a large recreation room at the bottom of the steps. Like the upper quarters, this room and its wet bar and connecting indoor pool might have been pleasant where they're not all of the clutter. The site had mannequins all around the room staged in various poses and it frankly scared Tony. Brian noticing Tony's reluctant glances at all of these mannequins says I get lonely down here and they give me company wisely refusing to to take the drink that Brian offered him Tony noticed that Brian got a little mad about this but nevertheless Brian Smart insisted that they party and have a good time so he excused himself briefly 
Upon his return, he seemed looser, less timid, more willing to speak. And Tony thought that this was because he had done some drugs when he went away and he speculated it was more than likely cocaine. Um, he said that he had seen that same type of effervescent buoyancy in other people who have done cocaine. I can attest to this. Now, I've never used cocaine a day in my life, but certainly I have been in spaces where other people have. And, and, and yeah, it's imagine liquid courage, but in powder form if you snorted it up your nose. So Brian convinces Tony after he's had his little bump that they should go for a swim and what he discovered was a lap pool that was equal depths at both ends. So they swam naked and Brian talked about all kinds of things. And eventually his expression changed. And he says to Tony, I just learned this really neat trick. And he gathered up a hose that lay by the edge of the pool. And he says, quote, if you choke someone while you're having sex, it feels really great. You really get a rush. And he says, you just pinch these two veins. And he, you know indicates two arteries in his own neck and he says it's great buzz you know you should see how someone looks when they're doing it their lips change color that's how you know it's working listening to this you know tony is sitting here and he's like yeah i i'm absolutely convinced that this person has murdered my friend roger brian says brian smart says do it to me and so tony obliges him and slips this you know hose around his neck and he you know, squeezes on it while this Brian Smart person masturbates. And then Tony, who was, I guess, completely freaked out at this point, but not wanting to do anything that would get him murdered um, because he thinks that this person is a murderer, um, says in retrospect that he thought it was very clear that Brian had done this, quote unquote, Brian, this is not his real name, but the name he was going by. So he says that it seemed like this person had done this repeatedly and so tony you know was like well the only way i'm gonna figure out what happened here is to let him do it and so tony says oh okay do it to me too brian ties the hose around tony's neck and starts pulling and pressuring it and pulling tighter and tighter and tighter and tony not wanting to actually die does something very smart here he pretends to be unconscious so once he stops, you know, fighting and holds his breath, he feels Brian smart ease off tension and he hears Brian whispering his name. Tony doesn't say anything. And then Brian begins shaking him violently. Tony pops open his eyes and grins and this Brian person is outraged. And he's like, you scared the shit out of me. You know, you can die doing this. There have been accidents. And this is when Tony decides to stop beating around the bush. And he's like, I'm, he just is frank with him about it. And he says, is that what happened to Roger Goodlett? Was he one of your accidents? Were there others? If Tony hoped to get a confession, he was disappointed. Brian only stared at him, not really comprehending because he's kind of lost in a daze of, of whatever substance he had taken, you know, maybe cocaine, maybe not. And so his only response was to just kind of grin at Tony. Um, and so Tony states that he acted like the whole thing was just a, a little game and his speech became slurred and all of a sudden he got very tired. So this gave Tony a chance to kind of scout things out. So while Brian was asleep, he kind of sneaks around in the other parts of the house because he didn't believe 
you know, Brian's story about him being a landscaper, getting this house ready for other people to move in because there were cars and, and furniture. So if the house is unoccupied, it seemed a bit strange for it to have as much clutter in it as it did. So then he keeps looking around and then he realizes that he sees children's toys and women's clothing in the rooms. And so the place had obviously been lived in for some time. So now he goes to try to look for Brian Smart's real name. So creeping back downstairs, he looks through these, you know, the pants that Brian took off. But when Brian kind of snorted and shook up, Tony dropped the pants. And unfortunately, before he had another chance to peep again, Brian woke up. And it took some convincing, but Tony finally convinced Brian to, to drive him back into town. He got dressed, searched for his keys, and then he led Tony back down to the Buick. And they drove back to Indianapolis, miraculously. So Brian, you know, of course, trying to save face, leans over to Tony and says, hey, you're a good sport. You really know how to play. As the car rolled into town, he made Tony promise that they would meet at the 501 Club again the following Wednesday. And Tony wasn't very clear about where Brian's house was actually located because it was either in Westfield or Carmel, both very exclusive suburbs in Hamilton County. But with the directions given, Vandegrift knew that the place was outside of Marion County where Indianapolis sits. The trouble with this is that the vague description of the house stated by Tony, could really fit any number of homes in that area. So all he had to go on was a sign that posted that said it was something farms. Um, so Vandergriff is hoping that Tony will be able to meet this person again at the 501 Club, and that doesn't happen. Um, so they're looking for this Buick, expecting it to come by. They're looking for someone to fit Brian's description of the brown haired, long faced, pale man. And by the time the car pulls over, or I'm sorry, not <clears throat> by the time the bar closed that evening, much to, you know, Virgil Vandergriff's disappointment, it looks as if Tony Harris has been stood up. So they don't find this Brian smart person again. So what they decide to do is reach out to the Indianapolis Police Department. Um, so the police obviously earlier did not believe Tony's wild story of some man trying to kill him via erotic asphyxiation. Um, but this time, Virgil Vandegrift meets Mary Wilson, and she is um, a person in the department who is working on a number of other missing persons cases. So he found her to be much more receptive to the information. Um, so they're sitting here, and she actually was the principal investigator on the Jeff Jones disappearance. Um, and so he brings to her the information that, that he has. Um, and it turns out that she's also investigating the disappearances of some other Indianapolis men too. Um, 20 year old Richard Hamilton, 21 year old Johnny Bayer and 28 year old Alan Livingston and others dating back to the early nineties. And these are all gay men. So 
Mary, being very smart, says that she thinks that Tony Harris could be the long lost connection that would tie these disappearances together. Um, and if he had survived this night and been able to tell this this story that seems, you know, stranger than fiction, what they decided to do was put, you know, plainclothes detectives at these gay bars, uh, the 501 Club, uh, the Varsity, and Our Place, which are all bars that um, these men went missing from, to see if maybe they could I find someone in the bar or bartenders or people that work there that may remember this person who is saying he's Brian Smart. So she tells Tony, if you see him, just get me the plate number and we'll take it from there. Um, so Mary wasn't sure that, you know, Tony would get a license plate number, but she felt like he had a better chance than they did because they were in the bars, you know, they were in the scene and they hoped that Brian would show up again. So they are going through this. They keep waiting. Um, they keep trying to see what happens to try to figure out what what they can come up with. So Bill Hilsley, who was one of um, Virgil Vandegrift's investigators, had also been a state trooper for many years and knew the highways and really Indianapolis area. And so he was to search the, the country suburbs. And so his quest kind of brought him to a property sign at the end of a long driveway in Westfield marked Fox Hollow Farms. And so he was aware of Tony Harris's statement about seeing a sign outside of Brian's house that read farm something and thought he would investigate. So the state that he came upon really resembled Tony's description and nobody seemed home. So he went and peered through the windows and went looking for the indoor pool. And so, but he knew because he didn't have a search warrant or any reason to be there that he was kind of stretching the legalities of his job, but he felt like this might've been where Tony was. And so he found out that it belonged to a family named Baumeister. So Vandergrift ordered aerial shots to be made of the property. And when he showed the photos to Tony, however, Tony looked at them for a moment and replying, no, I don't think so. The driveway is too short from what I remember it to be. So here is where we meet the person that we are in fact looking for, Herbert Richard Baumeister. So Herb Baumeister, as he is called, was born April 7th, 1947 to Dr. Herbert E. and Elizabeth Baumeister of Indianapolis, and he was the oldest of four children. His father was an anesthesiologist, and soon after the last of his siblings were born, the family moved to an affluent area of Indianapolis called the Washington Township. So by all accounts, Herbert had a normal childhood, but when he reached adolescence, that changed. It's said that Herbert used to obsess over very like vile, disgusting things, and he developed a very macabre sense of humor. And it seemed that he appeared to lose his ability to judge right from wrong. Um, apparently, his behavior and what his behavior was at school was was very, very alarming to teachers, and reach you know, and it it got to a very kind of harried point it's been reported by um one of his classmates that at some point he found a dead crow on the side of the road and picked it up and put it in his pocket and then left it on his teacher's desk apparently he would constantly pick up dead animals um and then he also um 
there were rumors that he would urinate on the teacher's desk. And so slowly but surely, the other his peers started distancing themselves because they really did not understand the morbid, weird behavior he was exhibiting. And in class, Herb was often disruptive and volatile. And so his teachers reached out to his parents for help and his parents tried to help. The Baumeisters had noticed that their son was acting strangely and they sent him for a medical evaluation. And it was revealed that Herbert was schizophrenic and suffered from multiple personality personality disorder. It does not look as if he received any type of treatment. Um, we'll get into why that is a little bit later, but it doesn't look like they were able to do anything for him aside from just tell him that he had the treatment. And his parents just kind of assumed that it would, when he got to high school, a lot of the school was focused on sports and, and wanting to be in the in crowd. And, and Herb was just not athletic. He was very smart, but he just did not fit in. And so because he really didn't fit in with that crowd, he just did not really make any friends. And so he graduated and felt like, you know, he could shed his high school years and maybe college would be different for him. So he gets to college and he is still very directionalist. Um, he dropped out his freshman year. Um, and his father basically told him, you know, Herb, you have to do something. And if you are willing to go back to school and prove to me that you can just finish and pass one class, then I would be willing to keep supporting you until you figure out what it is you want to do. Herb agrees to this and goes back to school and takes exactly one class. And that class is anatomy. Now, Herb's reasoning for wanting to take anatomy is the thought that he would be able to be up close with and dissect cadavers. Now, if anyone has taken an A&P class in college, you realize your introductory classes have nothing to do with cadavers. You are not dissecting anything. You are looking at diagrams and books, and at best in lab, you are looking at you know, some skeletons or some videos, but I did not see any dead bodies or cadavers in my intro um, A&P class in lab. And I really don't think anybody does that I know of. Now, if I'm wrong, reach out, please. But I, I don't think that that happens. And so he was very disappointed by this and actually did not finish this class. And so he would go here and there for the next four years to appease his father, but never graduated. But his father was like, hey, dude, you have to get a job. It is what it is. Um, so his father was a respected man in town and was able to get Herb a job with Indianapolis Star, a newspaper, and they hired Herb as a copy boy. So Gary Donna was an advertising executive who worked for the paper, and he remembers that Herb was sensitive and he was obsessed with wanting to be somebody. He dressed well and he was eager, but he just did not fit in with everybody else. And so Gary Donna um, recalls one odd incident that happens with Herb. He says that Herb offered to drive Gary and his friends to an Indianapolis uh, University, an Indiana University football game in hopes that he might kind of, I guess Herb wanted to fit in. And so when the day came, he jokingly showed up in a hearse to take everybody to the football game. 
in the hearse. And so apparently he got the hearse through his dad's connections with the hospital. And so he raced them to the game with the lights flashing as like a chauffeur. And he's like laughing maniacally because people are pulling over, getting out of the way so that he can drive through. But Gary and his friends and their dates wondered, you know, what kind of madman <laughs> have we let steer us? Because what is going on? Which, it, you know, is fair. But one good thing did happen. Um, he met his wife, Julie. Um, Julie was a teacher, and Julie is short for Juliana. But Juliana Sater, he met her while he was in college on one of his, you know, very brief stints or taking classes. He found something that he was interested in that his father actually approved of. Um, at this time, Herb, I think, realized that he was gay. And so he was kind of going into the city and frequenting gay bars, but to kind of keep his dad off his case and off of the radar of what he was doing. Because again, he's only going to this part-time um, job at the Indianapolis Star. And then he's only taking one class. And so his dad was like, well, what else are you doing with your time? This is when he joins the Young Republicans. And so his dad is very pleased with this. And it's through this organization that he meets Juliana in November of that year. And so then a little bit later, well, actually, I'm sorry, not November, he meets Juliana. And then maybe about six months later in November of 1971, they got married at a United Methodist Church in Indianapolis. They seemed to hit it off when they met initially. Um, they both wanted to have their own business. She really enjoyed her initial chats with Herb. Uh, Juliana was a teacher who had graduated from um, IU. And so she was uh, really a good fit for Herb. And I think she thought that they would have a good life together. Um, and I think this kind of gave Herb a bit of cover. Their wedding was kind of like the who's who of the upper crust, just because his dad was of that ilk. And so this marriage with Juliana, who also had a very respected family, not necessarily rich, but respected, allowed him to be among the movers and shakers. These people were here to celebrate the big day. And Herb was on. He was manic. He was happy. You know, he was very charming. And so this left people feeling like, you know, hey, this is someone that I can have a connection with, that I would be able to, you know, do business with. And so that was really helpful um, at that point. Um, but eventually, after all the weirdness and whatnot at the Indianapolis Star, Herb gets fired. <laughs> um they really were just kind of like he's insane and so the wedding did help a bit but not as much as they thought so what happens is that after this pulling some strings herb's dad gets him another job at the bureau of murder of the at the bureau of motor vehicles that his dad secured for him and so herb is working there and you know he's the Department of Motor Vehicles, obviously you're paying attention to detail. There are a lot of forms. Herb is very good at this job. The issue with this is that Herb was just very, very odd to other people. Um, <laughs> there's really no other way to put it. He's just very, very strange with 
all of the other people that he works with and it's just they don't have a good a, a good feeling about her at the bnb he was very bossy and aggressive towards his co-workers and he would lash out at them for no reason as if he was playing a role emulating what he thought a good supervisor should be um and his behavior was very erratic and his sense of propriety propriety was very off for instance one year he sent a christmas card to everyone at work that pictured him with another man both dressed in holiday drag in the early 70s few people saw any humor in that and the talk around the water cooler that was that her was gay and that he was a nutcase now obviously there's nothing wrong with being gay <laughs> at all not even a little bit but this was you know the 70s and times are different and you know i hate that that was the type of reception he got but again i don't know that you send out a, a drag christmas card to your co-workers that you don't know that well either that might be the proprietary part so after 10 years even though herb had a horrible relationship with his co-workers he was recognized as an intelligent go-getter who produced results and was promoted to program director but in 1985 with the year of the promotion he had yearned for, he was terminated after he urinated on a letter addressed to the then Indiana government governor, Robert D. Orr. The act substantiated rumors about who was responsible for urine found months earlier on his manager's desk. So we see his early childhood behaviors of urinating on his teacher's desk rear their ugly head where he is peed on his supervisor's desk and then ultimately on a letter to the governor that gets him fired. Nine years into this marriage with Julie, they start a family. Marie is born in 1979, followed by Eric in 1981, and then Emily in 1984. And so before Herb lost his job um, at the BMB, things were going pretty well. Um, so Julie had quit her job to become a full-time mother, but she returned to work when Herb couldn't find um, steady work. And so as a temporary stay-at-home dad, Bonk, Herbert was by all accounts a really good dad. He was caring, he's a loving father to the children, but being jobless left him with too much time on his hands and he began drinking and visiting gay bars, um, which Juliana did not know about. So in 1985, in September, Baumeister received a slap on the wrist after being charged in a hit-and-run accident while driving drunk. Six months later, he was charged with stealing a friend's car and conspiracy to commit theft, but he managed to get out of those charges as well. Meanwhile, he bounced around between jobs until he began working at a thrift shop. And at first, he thought the job that was beneath him, but looking around, he realized that antique shops and thrift shops would be a, a really potentially good moneymaker. So over the next three years working there, he focused on learning the business. And it's during this time that his father died. And I think that the effect of this had on Herb is that he was kind of finally under from under his father's watchful eye and from under his father's thumb. So he was better in a position to kind of do it as he pleased without this kind of benevolence cloud hanging over him. So after his father's passing in 1988, they went to his mother and he asked to borrow $4,000, which she does allow him to do. Um, I will say that I think that if his father had been alive, he would not have given him the money. 
So with this money, Herb and Julie open up a thrift store that they named Save-A-Lot. They stocked it with gently used clothing and furniture and other used items, and a percentage of the store's profit went to a charity, the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis, and this business boomed. So the profit was so strong with this store that they were able to open a second store. And within three years, the Ballmeisters have gone from living paycheck to paycheck to being substantially wealthy. So usually this would be the time that I take to discuss with you an important portion of the story. So here I don't have that, but I did want to talk briefly about the fact that her Ballmeister was medically diagnosed as having schizophrenia very early in his life. Um, just as a disclaimer, I am not a therapist. I do not purport myself to be a therapist. Um, I have done research for this episode, um, but I will try not to get into the very clinical things just because I don't want body to feel like I am trying to provide any type of expert medical advice. So with schizophrenia, especially in Herb's case, he very much felt like it gave him an excuse to be two different people, if that makes sense. Obviously, people with schizophrenia are not necessarily dangerous, just like any other mental health um, challenges that people may have. If, you, if you, they are treated and the person is taking their medication, then these things are working fine and they are able to function like they should. So before Herb's father died and shortly after he had gotten married to Julie, so before they had children, what happened was his dad came to visit just to check on them. And what his dad found when he got there is that Herb was very compliant. Herb was, was not his normal argumentative self. He was very quiet. Um, and then Julie reported that they hadn't been having sex and that, in fact, over the course of their entire marriage, they had had sex a total of 10 times, which is miraculous, <laughs> crazy when you think about it, that of 10 times they were able to conceive a child three of those times. Um Julie says that when they had sex, all the lights had to be off and that she had never seen her nude with the lights on is he would always get undressed in the bathroom and then demand that the entire room be dark in order for them to be intimate. But I digress. The father, his father realized that something was odd and knowing his son and knowing his, his, his prior behaviors, he had him involuntarily committed. And when this happened, he was re-diagnosed as having schizophrenia. Um, and this go around, you know, he was treated. He was there for a few weeks. And when he got back out, he seemed to be doing better. He seemed to kind of be back on track. The issue with this is, is that in some ways, it'll Herb, Herb allowed it to be his crutch. Herb finding out that he had schizophrenia as an adult made him feel like the urges that he had as a clearly, well, clear to us in hindsight, but as a clearly gay man and someone who is fighting these urges to murder men because he is disgusted with himself, he feels like the schizophrenia gave him the ability to compartmentalize that part of himself. So on one hand, he's Herb Baumeister, who is a successful businessman, who is on the surface has a wonderful marriage and three, you know, and has these children and everything is going great for them. Um, 
And so he was able to separate that from his life as Herb Baumeister, a gay man, until it came to the part about feeling guilty about the feelings and sexual attraction that he had to men, and then ultimately murdering these men for nothing more except for hating himself and having the compulsion to kill. Now, obviously, not every person who, excuse me, has schizophrenia was not everybody that is schizophrenic is dangerous or anything of the sort. But, you know, I will have a brief discussion with you here about what schizophrenia may look like and what it's categorized as. So schizophrenia is a serious mental disorder in which people interpret reality abnormally. Schizophrenia may result in some combination of hallucinations, delusions, and extremely disordered thinking and behavior that impairs daily functioning and can be disabling. People with schizophrenia require lifelong treatment, and early treatment may help get symptoms under control before serious complications may develop and may help improve long-term outlook. So this applies to Herb, spe Herb specifically, because if Herb had gotten the type of help that he needed as a child when he was diagnosed, then he would have been on medication. And I think that even though back then mental health was a, was a spotty as best as far as care, they did have medication to help with the, um, the symptoms of schizophrenia that might have been helpful to him. And that coupled with therapy and ongoing uh, monitoring may have put Herb in a better place to kind of make better choices and, and not have this split feeling in him about himself. I do not know that to be the case 100% certainly because he could very well have had his symptoms under control and still been a murderer. We don't know. Um, but some of the, some of, <clears throat> Schizophrenia involves a range of problems with thinking or cognition and behavior and emotions, and the signs and symptoms may vary. Um, so, one, the person may have delusions. These are false beliefs that are not based in reality. For example, you may think that you're being harmed or harassed and that certain gestures or comments are directed at you or that you have exceptional abilities or are famous or that another person is in love with you or that some major catastrophe is about to occur and delusions occur in most people with schizophrenia. So um, it has not been ever stated that um, her Baumeister was suffering from any type of delusions, but again, we will never know. Um, hallucinations. These usually involve seeing or hearing things that don't exist. Um, yet for the person with schizophrenia, they have the full force and impact of a normal experience. So for them, this feels very real. And so hallucinations can actually be any of the symptoms. Um, so they may see things, you may feel things, um, you could, you know, any of any of your, you know, smell things. But the most common form is an auditory hallucination or hearing voices. Um, again, I do not think that this applies to her Baumeister, but uh, the other is disorganized thinking or, or speech. And what this is in for in disorganized thinking is inferred from disorganized speech. Effective communication can be impaired and answers to questions may be partially or completely unrelated. Rarely the speech may include putting together meaningless words that can't be understood, sometimes known as word salad. Another symptom is extremely disorganized or abnormal motor behavior. 
This may show in a number of ways from like childlike silliness to unpredictable agitation. Behavior isn't focused on a goal, so it's hard to do tasks. Behavior can include resistance to instructions, inappropriate or bizarre posture, a complete lack of response, or useless and excessive movement. Now, this I feel is, is herb to a T, right? He's always had an issue with being able to figure out what is, what, what is, what the proper behavior is in a social situation. Um, he is prone to fits of agitation. Um, his behavior doesn't really have any rhyme or reason. Um, there could also be some disordered thinking there. It may not show itself in speech, but certainly. And certainly a complete lack of response, especially when Julie and his father were talking to him and, he no and the father noticed immediately that the behavior was odd for him. And finally, negative symptoms. This refers to a reduced lack of ability to function normally. For example, the person may neglect personal hygiene or appear to lack emotion, which means they don't make eye contact, they don't change their facial expression, or they speak in a very monotone voice. Also, the person may lose interest in everyday activities, socially withdraw, or lack the ability to experience pleasure. Again, this applies to Herb. The, you know, the feeling that, again, I... I Kudos to his dad, it, you know, that he was very hard on him. And I wish that maybe there had been some help for him. But clearly his dad recognized what other people did not, that the changes in his son were not, in fact, just no normal. And I think it's because they had had him diagnosed early in life and did not do anything that he immediately recognized those same behaviors rearing their head again. And was like, we need to have you committed to get that fixed. So these symptoms can vary in type and severity over time with periods of worsening and remission of symptoms, and some symptoms may always be present. In men, schizophrenia symptoms typically start in the early to mid-20s, and in women, it typically begins in the late 20s. It is highly uncommon for children to be diagnosed with schizophrenia and is rare for those older than age 45. So again, Herb is a very rare case in this situation for him to be diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was you know, a, a small child, early teenager, tween, maybe 12 or 13. Um, so what this can look like, even if it does happen in teenagers, and again, this makes it much more difficult to recognize just because some of the early symptoms in schizophrenia are common development things during teen years, like withdrawals from friends and family, a drop in performance at school, trouble sleeping, irritability in a depressed mood, and lack of motivation. Also, recreational substance use like marijuana or LSD can sometimes present itself with similar signs and, and, and symptoms. So it's harder to diagnose in the early years. So I, I'm curious as to what specifically they saw in Herb, aside from the urinating on desk and, and kind of odd fascination with dead animals that led them to believe that he had schizophrenia. Um, but I just wanted to kind of cover that so we could see where we are. Um, so people with schizophrenia often lack awareness that their difficulties stem from a mental disorder. So it often falls on their friends and family to get them help. I will also point out that in teenage years, when Herb initially was diagnosed, teens are less likely to have delusions and they are more likely to have vis visual hallucinations. So Herb never reported any visual hallucinations, but he probably wasn't having delusions either. I think Herb wanted to please those around him and be popular as teenagers want to. So again, I'm just very curious 
to what specifically pointed to him being schizophrenic. Now, granted, he was re-diagnosed and this was also the case as an adult, but I'm just curious what presented as a teen for them to give him the initial diagnosis so early. So yeah, um, again, I just kind of wanted to do that. I am not a, <laughs> again, not a therapist, um, am not making any diagnosis. This is what he was diagnosed with by actual doctors, but I just wanted to give you guys kind of the rundown so you could understand really what was going on with her. But I also, again, want to say that there was a dichotomy in his mind because he used the idea that he had schizophrenia as this is wrong with me and that is why I am gay and why I'm a killer instead of it being I am a gay man or rather in this case what it should be I am a serial killer who also happens to be a gay man who also happens to have schizophrenia but with that said let's get back to the story so now Herb and Julie and the three kids are rolling in money because they have these two save a lot stores. So in 1991, Ballmeisters moved into their dream home, an 18-acre horse ranch called Box Hollow Farms in the upscale Westfield area outside of Indianapolis in Hamilton County. So this large, beautiful, multi-dollar mansion, multi-million you know, million dollar mansion had all the bells and whistles, including a stable and an indoor pool and remarkably despite the schizophrenia diagnosis and all of the other things going on with herb he became a well-respected successful family man who was known for his philanthropy and giving to charities in the area unfortunately the stress from working so closely together with julie soon began to pull apart the threads of their relationship from the start of the business, Herbert treated Juliana as an employee and often yelled at her for no reason. So to keep the peace, she took a back seat on business decisions, but it took a toll on their marriage. And the couple argued and separated on and off for the next several years. The Save-A-Lot stores had a reputation for being very clean and organized, but the opposite could be said about Julie and Herb's new home. The once meticulously maintained grounds became overgrown with weeds, and inside the rooms were a mess. It was as if housekeeping was a low priority. The only area that Herb seemed interested in or cared about was the pool house. He kept the wet bar stocked and filled the area with extravagant decor, including mannequins that he dressed in appearance uh, dressed and positioned to give the appearance of a lavish pool party. To escape the turmoil, Julianne and the children often stayed with Herb's mother at her lake at her Lake Wawasi condominium. I'm sorry if I said that wrong. So Herb usually remained to remain behind to run the stores, or that's what he, you know, told his wife. Um, so the cracks that had up until the mid 1990s been invisible to others regarding their relationship really had began to manifest you know and poor julie was in the sexless loveless marriage with these three children and it was appearing you know in her mannerisms and her facial expressions people said that while they saw the children outside of the manor a lot playing they rarely ever saw julie and then if they did see julie she was only outside for a bit she tried not to go out the house was cluttered with things Herb would go on business trips constantly and constantly bringing back more inventory, spending more money on these things, and they had nowhere to put them. So it just got to a, a kind of a, it just kind of got to a fever pitch. At this time, 
you know, the kids would bring people over, kids, other kids over to play. And then if they happened to bring these children in the house, then once Julie put them out of the house, she forbade her children from playing with these kids again, because now they had seen the clutter and, and the mess inside of the home. And, and she did not want anybody to know how they were truly living. So professionally, their businesses begin to suffer from this behavior. And by the end of 1994, the Save-A-Lots had taken a plunge. You know, the shopper, shopping declined, the bills soared. Julie was tired of the bickering and the financial dilemmas and had threatened divorce. And as another year opened in 1995, she did not act. Instead, she just sat by and watched the businesses fail and her marriage sour and Herb grow even increasingly more strange. And at work, Herb's ever-darkening mood was venting at his employees. He demanded grueling work and unfair attention from them, acting as if he was a king who deserved some type of praise, and he would fire those who wouldn't comply to this unjust treatment. And yet his own workday behavior was ridiculous. He would disappear for hours and then return reeking of alcohol and, and barking orders through his whiskey breath. And the once tidy stores had become under lack of attention disgusting and slovenly um one of the clerks, clerks from the store remembers everything was so dirty everywhere you looked there was a mountain of garbage bags it was like working in a garbage heap and so because of this um the businesses fail and uh they have their um backing from the children's bureau of indianapolis they cut ties with them it's about this time while um Herb is having these drinking binges and not really doing anything and the business is failing. In 1994, we'll cut back a little, uh, the Baumeister's 13-year-old son, Eric, was playing in a wooded area behind the home and he found a partially buried human skeleton. He showed it to his mother, who then in turn showed it to her husband, Herb. He told her that his father had used skeletons in his research and that after finding one of these skeletons while cleaning out the garage, he had buried it. And surprisingly, Juliana believed him. She actually did not, you know, worry about what he said. And she was concerned, but she basically just said that, you know, hey, if that's what he says happened, then that's what we're going to go with. And she let it drop. So now we'll cut back over to where we were. Now that we've kind of learned more about Herb and Julie and the family, we are going to cut back to Virgil Vandegrift, Mary Wilson, and their search for Brian Smart. They are still having, you know, trouble finding their leads. And like they said, there weren't too many hard leads and they couldn't push very far because these people were rich, upstanding citizens in the community that they were, you know, virtually without any real evidence or hard evidence saying one of you is a, a murderer of, of gay men. And so it, it obviously would not have gone over well. Um, so... Basically, Hamilton is one of Indiana's fastest growing wealthiest counties, and its median family income at this time was $87,168, which is almost twice the rest of the states. Um, so the average home went for about $106,000 um, and was just like a 25-minute highway commute north of Indianapolis. So it was really like the postcard of like suburban middle America. So that hard lead that they kind of got when they went out to the Ballmeisters Virgil Vandegrift and Mary Wilson finally kind of wanted to take a leap forward. So assuming that the situation had cooled off enough to reappear on the gay scene, Herb Baumeister decided to show up at the Varsity Lounge on the evening of August 29th, 1995. 
who was also at the bar was Tony Harris, who at this point, after a year, had given up ever seeing Brian Smart again. But he, you know, refrained from like being super excited and he just um, played it cool and chatted with Baumeister and was like, you know, oh, nice to see you. It's been such a long time. What's been going on? Everything good with you? Um, so he really just kind of did a very good job of staying calm, staying collected. And then by the end of the night, he was able to get his license plate number of the pickup truck that Baumeister was in when he drove away. So the next morning, hearing what Tony was able to do, Mary Wilson cheered in excitement because now they could run a plate and figure out who this person really was. Plate number 75237A belonged not to anyone named Brian Smart, but to a Herbert R. Baumeister of Westfield, Indiana. He lived in an estate called Fox Hollow Farms, and as we know, with his wife and three children. The manor house, Mary learned, boasted a swimming pool in the basement. Now, the police were closing in and Herb began to unravel. Mary and her boss, Lieutenant Thomas Green, approached Herb Baumeister at his Washington Street store on November 1st after first surveying his actions for a while. So without pretense, Mary told him straight out while they were there, they were investigating the disappearance of several young men in the Indianapolis community and that he was a suspect and they wanted to search his home. And with the snub of a suffering saint, Herb refused, telling them that further communication needed to be going, channeled through his lawyer. And in the car afterwards, Lieutenant Green told Mary Wilson that he thought Herb was, quote, not only nervous beyond belief, but one of the weirdest guys I ever saw, end quote. Not to be outdone by Herb's refusal, Mary attempted to outangle him. She approached Julie Baumeister, who as co-owner of Fox Hollow, could legally authorize a ground search of the property. Detective, the detective found that Julie was just as stubborn as Herb had been, however. Evidently, Herb had gotten to Julie first and told her that he had been falsely accused of a theft and that if they were approached, do not, under any circumstances, allow the police to conduct a search. But... When Mary confided in Julie and explained the real reason for their search, Julie looked at Mary as if she had just dropped a nuclear bomb in her lap. When she recovered enough to speak again, she informed Mary that they still could not search her home. She was polite but still stunned almost beyond words. Mary gave Julie her card and urged her to call if she changed her mind. Julie's refusal, the law knew, did not indicate her guilt. It was typical reaction of a wife who denies, you know, she's been married to someone with such a dark side, but also you were married to someone you only had sex with 10 times in the course of a 10 year marriage. And that's insane. So much so that things soured more and more at the Baumeister residence, obviously brought on that by the tensions that Herb was feeling because the police were making all these inquiries. Julie even phoned Mary Wilson one morning to blame her for causing her domestic life to worsen. She said, the police are not coming to my house. She screamed, tearing through things, upsetting my children, all on the word of a psycho named Tony Harris, who my husband has never heard of. So Virgil Vandegrift, as a private detective, is playing the waiting game. And Mary Wilson, who just wants a search warrant, was able to get one because Hamilton County was out of her jurisdiction. Hamilton County, in the meantime, would not cooperate. Why? Who knows? 
but more than likely it's because they did not want to confront an otherwise law-abiding citizen until they had conclusive proof whether they really didn't believe Baumeister was guilty or not. I'm not sure, but it might have saved a lot of trouble in a six-month wait that it took eventually for Julie to finally open back up her yard for inspection. So in June of 1996, six months, Julie came to her senses. Over that time, her husband had become a paranoid wreck. When the Children's Bureau decided to cancel his contract with the two failing Save-A-Lot stores in May, he had seemed to go off the deep end. The home life for the woman was now intolerable. Both she and Herb had initiated separate divorce proceedings, and her mind continued through it all to replay the doubts about Herb's sanity and that Mary had force-fed her into consciousness. Suddenly, she realized that she felt no loyalty to the thing that had once been her husband. And on June 23rd, she called her lawyer, Bill Wendling, and told him to get in touch with Mary Wilson. Herb was currently out of town with their son, Eric, visiting his mother, and she wanted to take this opportunity to tell Mary about the bones she found in her backyard. The following day after Julie's lawyer notified her, Mary Wilson drove up to Fox Hollow Farms. Accompanying her were two very skeptical Hamilton County officials, Captain Tom Anderson and Detective Jeff Markham. In truth, Anderson was sure that the human remains Wilson hoped to find would turn out to be animal bones, and he was not too shy, even to Mary's face, to directly apprise the woman's suspicions as bullshit. Julie Ballmeister, with her attorney at her side, met the law enforcement people at her front door that afternoon and led them through the house to a wooded backyard. There, she pointed to a spot where two years earlier, her son Eric had found a skeleton. The reason she had not notified the authorities until now, she claimed, was because she had believed Herb's story about the bones being no more than a dissecting skeleton until his recent erratic behavior had filled her with new doubts. The yard at first glance looked normal, but as the man began to click, kick through the low grass and patches of dirt just beyond the patio, they encountered a bone about a foot long, charred from having been burned. They weren't sure if it was human. Then as their eyes focused on the area immediately around them, it quickly became apparent that those many pebbles and rocks strewn across the flat cover were not pebbles and rocks at all, but fragments of bone. Lawyer Bill Wendling, watching the flat the police scoop up one chipped and broken bone after another, now looked down at his own feet. Like the evidence that followed the old adage, so obvious it's unclear, he realized in a chill that he too was standing on what resembled bone chips. Here where the Baumeister kids played their innocent children games, and at one point he leaned over to pick up what were obviously human teeth. Pieces of bone lay everywhere. Still, the county people on site were unconvinced that what they were gathering and taking photographs of were human. On this point, they drastically contended with Mary Wilson. Unlike her law enforcement counterparts from Hamilton County, Mary had heard the fear in Tony Harris's voice. She had seen firsthand how nervous Herb had been and how he had done everything in his power to keep her from getting into the house, including lying to Julie about the investigation. And now she knew why. She delivered the bags of evidence to forensic anthropologist Stephen Naraki at the University of Indiana for, ex for examination. His answer was fast coming. They're human, they're recent, and they've been burned. 
The next day, the police returned to the scene of what looked like one of the worst crimes Indiana had ever encountered. It began to appear now that Herbert Baumeister's homemade graveyard might contain the remains of many young homosexual men who over the years had vanished from the streets of Indianapolis. This time, other officials joined the official search party to conduct a thorough dig of the premises. Among these people were the prosecuting attorney, Sonia Leerenkamp, and a half score of detectives. Um, Naraki came to with two assistants to perform scientific exhumation of what was obviously a secret cemetery. The anthropological team began the hunt by placing small orange flags into the ground wherever a bone fragment appeared. In only in half an hour, they had dropped a hundred such markers. Summing it up, Naraki exclaimed, it looks like a mass disaster scene. This dig continued for hours, and then the police began to check out the interior of the Ballmeister home. They found the mannequins, the wet bar, and the pool just as Tony Harris had described them. However, they uncovered something that Tony had not seen the evening of his encounter with Ballmeister. A semi-hidden video camera that the police immediately suspected had been used to tape the strangulations. The case was turning more bizarre by the hour. Julie became anxious about the safety of her son, Eric, who was with her visiting his grandmother. Reality seeping in, she feared the limits to which Herb might go if he found out what was happening at home. Prosecutor Camp and a county judge drew up custody papers to remove the boy from his father's presence. Efforts were made on Baumeister's part to hold on to his son, but came to no avail. He had no reason to suspect that his secret had been literally uncovered back at Fox Hollow, and he figured this custody action was just a ploy by Julie to counteract his latest divorce movements. When the police showed up with the proper papers to escort the child home, Herb released him calmly and without menace. Back at the estate, plenty was happening. County interrogators led by Sheriff's Detective Kenneth Wiseman were beginning to put the pieces of the Baumeister puzzle together. Compost piles yield heavy degrees of bone where it appeared the killer had burned the corpses under piles of leaves and garbage. They interviewed Tony Harris who told them about Herb's obsession with strangling and sexual asphyxiation. A big question they have, how could Herb have strangled and burned and buried these men without his family's knowledge? Well, the answer came from Julie herself. She explained that sometimes, for several months at a time, especially during the summers, she and the children would visit the widowed Mrs. Baumeister, leaving Herbert alone at home. Balancing the times of the victim's disappearances when the periods that she and the children were away, the incidences matched. Meanwhile, the excavations in the backyard went on without pause. The, numbers have dig- the number of diggers had swelled to about 60 volunteers, mostly off-duty policemen and firemen. And the first couple of days of the search produced an amazing 5,500 bones, teeth and bone fragments, which according to Stephen Naraki, made up about four bodies. After they had combed the entire 18 acres of the Baumeister property, members of the team were soon to learn that their search was far from over. Neighbors from an adjacent farm crossed into the police cordon to inform them that they had found evidence of yet more bones next door. They led investigators to an area cut through with a a drainage ditch that separated the two properties. Here in this ditch, investigators found so many human ribs, vertebrae, and spines that one of the officials murdered, muttered, Jesus Christ, they're everywhere. The bones were so numerous and more intact than on the Baumeister limb, they actually stuck up visibly from the mud. 
Shovels drew up not only more bones, but with them cans of Miller Genuine Draft, Herb's favorite drink, and handcuffs that had probably bound the victims in death. By the time of the exhumation of this area ended, and by the time that the 140 bones were estimated as those belonging to another seven men, the mortal count had risen to an estimated 11 men killed. And it would be September before the anthropologists were able to identify some of these bodies. Disappointingly, only four, and each of these gathered from dental records. The four positively identified victims named were Roger Allen Goodlett, 34, Stephen Hale, 26, Richard Hamilton, 20, and Manuel Resendez, 31. To this day, the remains of others found at Box Hollow Farms still wait to be identified. But where was Herb Baumeister? He'd absconded to Lake Wawasi and like his victims, he faded into the mist. The only clue the police had came from his brother, Brad Baumeister. He called Detective Wiseman on June 29th, five days after police found the graveyard behind the house. Brad told the police officers that his brother had phoned him from, from the little Michigan town of Finville and told them that he was on a business trip and needed money quickly. After Brad sent the cash, he became aware of the goings-on at Fox Hollow Farm and notified authorities immediately. As best can be determined, Herb, in his 1989 gray Buick, left Wawasi and headed north, arriving at Finville around the 28th of June. The next day, he reached Port Huron, where he again phoned Brad, asking for more money. By this time, Brad had spoken to Wiseman, who asked Brad to tell his brother should he ring again to have him call the police who wanted to talk to him. It was a futile request, he figured, but worth trying. At this point, Herb entered Canada. The Ontario, Ontario Provincial Police told the Indianapolis Star that they believed Herb arrived in Sarnia around June 30th, spending several days there before driving east along Lake Huron shoreline to Grand Bend, Ontario. There in Pinery Park on the evening of July 3rd, Herb would take his life. He put a 357 Magnum revolver barrel in his, to his forehead and pulled the trigger. The note he left behind attributed his decision to a failing businesses and an irreparable marriage, but there was no mention of the skeletons left behind him in Westfield. Instead, his final words on a three-page suicide document explained that he would now eat a peanut butter sandwich, his favorite snack, and then go to sleep. The evening before he died, a Canadian trooper had stopped to ask him why he was sleeping in his car under a nearby bridge. He told him that he was merely a tourist passing through and was grabbing a moment's rest. At that time, she noted some luggage and what looked like a pile of videotapes in his back seat. Were those videotapes of the murders he committed in the pool at Fox Hollow Farms? Asked private detective Virgil Vandegriff. We will never know. For... After he died, there were no signs of the tapes on him or in the car. He must have shot them in the lake. He must have threw them in the lake before he shot himself. At this point, Virgil muses and adds, perhaps it is for the best. In a report entitled, Who is a Serial Killer? Virgil Vandegrift shares his insight into the brain of serial killers. Following are the excerpts from his informative work that apply to the persona of Barmeister. Serial killers are typically white and male between the ages of 25 and 35. He's often married, has children, and has full-time employment. The majority of the time, he will kill white victims. His intellect ranges from below average to above average. He does not know his victims nor have any particular hatred for them. Of the four main types of killers, the psychotic, the missionary motive type, 
the thrill killer and the lust killer, Ballmeister fits the last category. The lust killer, the most common type, gets a thrill and gets turned on by the killings. They usually torture their victims. The more heinous the action, the more aroused they become. Herb also had a feeling of dissociation, including separation of feelings and daydreaming, and the ability to kill and then go on with his normal life. Following the disassociation, we find acts of fantasy, control of others in compulsive masturbation, and violent fantasy, exposure, and fantasy of murder. And often there is trauma reinforcement. In Herb's case, this translates as a loss of employment and financial stress brought on by the decline of the Save-A-Lot stores. Facilitators such as alcohol and drugs seem to have served as accessories to Herb's crime. Tony Harris saw him use both the evening he spent with him in the pool, and some people say that these give the serial killer the nerve he needs to commit crimes. Others say that these facilitators give them a much-needed excuse. In other words, something to blame the crimes on. The murders themselves start with a specific time period between victims, then varies from killer to killer. As the killer becomes more successful, the time period between murders shortens. The high from the murders and the need to get high becomes stronger with time. Thus, the murders become more frequent. Serial killers leave, take pride in not leaving evidence. Many times they can be perfectionist. Baumeier was, Baumeister was definitely the latter. The method of killings many times are associated with the fantasy. They are likely to keep a souvenir from a victim. Perhaps in Herb's case, the videotapes fulfilled that need. And even in the manner in which Herb got caught faithfully follows the mode of all serial killers' downfalls. He was overconfident in his ability to beat any investigation, and being overconfident, he carelessly left clues. And one very common trait as practiced by Herb was leaving his victims' bodies closer and closer to his own home. In short, Herbert Richard Baumeister was the consummate serial killer. Guys, that is the story of Herbert Baumeister, a man who was accused of many, many murders. In fact, the total is over 30-something if you include the I-70 murders, but because he um, completed suicide, we will never know the extent of truly who he murdered. Um, and we still have so many bodies that were found in his yard that we don't know who these people are. So... I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know it is a lot to take in. I'm glad to be back with you. Thank you for hanging in with me on this one. Um, so now do some self-care, shake it out, and you know, think of something happy and amazing that is not a piece of shit like Herb Ballmeister. Um, and I just hope that maybe someday we are able to identify those other victims, even though there's so little of them left, you know, the legacy and the memory of them remains. Um, so I will see you back here next week, same time, same place. Um, if you want to get in touch with me to talk about the episodes, suggest episodes or things you would like me to cover, you can do that at murderviewrotepod at gmail.com. You can also message me on Twitter. It's at VJ underscore Burton or the show's Twitter at murdervpod. Remember V has two E's, V-E-E. -E. You can find me there. Um, 
like I said, pretty soon we're going to have a TikTok channel um, where we can discuss some smaller true crime stories as well as maybe some video. Um, and then I have an idea that I want to ask you guys about and maybe I'll do a Twitter poll because I'd be very interested to see how you feel about me recapping some of our most interesting or what we or what you and I consider some of the more interesting forensic files episodes that we've seen because anyone who knows me knows that that is one of my most favorite shows and kind of why I got into true crime. So again, I thank you for hanging with me. I thank you for coming back to listen after me being on hiatus for so long. And again, I always appreciate you guys' support. So thank you for hanging in there with me. And until the next time, you are listening to Murder Be Wrote. And I am your host, B. You guys be safe.